Hi everyone, it's James Sandbrook from the Birmingham Marketing Meetup. Hope you guys are all well. Um, got a great talk from a chap called Louis Barnett. Uh, he was the youngest chocolatier to get a range of chocolates into Waitrose and Sainsbury's at the age of 14, which is just outrageous. Um, he's since gone on to do lots of amazing things. The guy is full of incredible stories um, and he's talking a lot today about the importance of brand and purpose and as somebody who has been there and done that uh, I think his advice is very valid uh, in, a, in a really practical sense as well. Um, he's also just one of the most lovely chaps I've ever met and um, yeah immediately you'll uh, you'll warm to him so I hope you really enjoy this talk. Um, also as always a huge thank you to Barry at uh, Bravo Marketing um, who puts together our podcasts and um, he's doing a great job um, and make sure you subscribe to our Wednesday at 2 email because uh, Joe stays up generally most Tuesday nights at about 3 o'clock in the morning making sure that goes out at Wednesday at 2 o'clock um, uh, they're full of useful tips and hints and articles um, uh, and also get yourself in the Facebook group uh, it's a closed group but it's, it's designed for you guys um, to sort of support each other and, uh, and yeah, if you want to come to one of the events, if you haven't already, we're soon to be in 11 locations. So go to the marketingmeetup.com website and we'll list all the uh, talks and podcasts, and all the you know, interesting stuff that you can, you can get from the group. Um, so yeah, really appreciate you guys listening to this and give us a good review and all that jazz. Uh, and yeah, we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Hi, hi guys, um, good to be here this evening. Right, before I start, I want to check who works in marketing agency background? Anybody? Okay, one, two, and then marketing jobs within other sort of organisations. Okay, and who's here just for the free food? Um, so I'm going to give you a quick um, pit stop tour of my background just to give you an idea of why I'm talking about brand and marketing. Um, my story began in 2004. I was 11 years old and was diagnosed at school with dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, short-term memory loss syndrome, ADHD and on the autistic spectrum. It's pretty screwed. Um, and uh, at the time, back then, teachers didn't really have an understanding of what those things were, sort of educational disabilities. And so I was kind of shoved in a classroom alongside a few other students. Long story short, I ended up being home educated. My parents sat with me and went, what are you going to do with your life? I said, well, I really like eating, I'm, I'm good at that, and I like animals. Um, so, long story short, I ended up starting to make cakes as a bit of a project. I was home educated, so sort of maths and all, all that sort of thing, started making cakes for family and friends. It grew to a couple of local restaurants, then a delicatessen. I started making chocolates and truffles at that time. This was 2005. Chocolate was starting to become kind of trendy. Um, in the UK, Belgian chocolate was hitting the supermarket shelves. And then I went into, some of you may know Stourbridge. I used to live in Kinver. Um, so I went into my local Waitrose store in Stourbridge and walked up to the store manager. They got all these banners in store saying, you know, um, local food heroes. And I literally walked up to the guy and went, I make chocolate, do you want some? He mm, doesn't quite work like that. Gave me a business card. Um, I sent some products off to Waitrose. I'd just come up with a concept I, uh, from a young age, I was always passionate about the, the environment and sustainability, lived in the countryside. And so I came up with the idea of an edible chocolate box with an edible chocolate lid, so a bit like an Easter egg, but in the shape of a chocolate box with chocolates inside. 
I sent it off to Waitrose. Two days later, uh, I got called into head office. And um, I'll never forget the day I walked into the office, the buyer sitting there. My parents dropped me off, walked out of the room, and the buyer looks at me in horror, like, where have they gone? So, oh no, it's, it's my company. It's like little 12 year old, or 13, I think I was at the time, plump little child sitting with a buyer. Um, I became Waitrose Youngest Ever Supplier that year and had an order for 165 chocolate boxes, which I thought was massive. I had to move into my garage out my parents' kitchen, made the 165 chocolate boxes, um, delivered, and I, I still remember pulling up to an eight foot loading bay in, in our 306 Peugeot, me passing up to my dad and him loading onto a pallet, and the pallet was about eight inches high. And all these like warehouse workers are looking at us going, is that it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I watched my pallets disappear into the depths of Waitrose. And at, at the same time, kind of press started to pull my story. I was the chocolate kid, Willy Wonka of the Midlands. Um, and I then went to a big food show, um, met Sainsbury's on the second day. Literally a woman came around with a clipboard and kind of pointed at me and went, you're that chocolate kid who spiced a waitress or something. Yeah, that's me. I went in, uh, did a presentation to the head buyer and um, I became their youngest ever supplier at 14. And that's where the story gets slightly more interesting. So I went to go and see him a couple of times. They're kind of dining me with, you know, Sainsbury's. Uh, balsamic vinegar and stuff and we're having all these lovely meetings and eventually I just said well, how many how many chocolate boxes do you want the buyer sort of punches a few numbers into a calculator and goes uh, 60,350 stores yep fine no problem um, and I went back to see my waitress buyer told him uh, he wasn't that impressed but then said well I tell you what we're gonna take you all stores which was 185 and we'll have 40,000 okay mm-hmm fine no problem. Uh, I ended up finding a unit in Bridge North Shropshire, moved straight in, bought chocolate machinery from Belgium. As it got shipped in, we started producing that day and I just about handmade with 10 full-time staff, 100,000 chocolate boxes. Um, somehow, somehow, uh, you know, 16 hour days, staying up all around the clock and um, BBC Breakfast Live News at that time came and featured me live uh, and my kind of life was never the same. I got called an entrepreneur. I had to Google it because I had no idea what this thing was um, that they were referring to me as. And so since then, I had a real split in my career. I was a chocolatier, but I was also an entrepreneur. Um, and I always say I'm an entrepreneur by default because I never intended to do it. I wasn't an entrepreneur that said, let's make a load of money. What can I make money with? Chocolate. It was very much about the passion that drove me to create the business and develop the product. Now, I wasted a lot of money in those early years. Um, within the first couple of years, I can say that I tipped about 65 grand down the drain on bad branding and marketing and packaging, got ripped off by a load of companies, and that then continued on and on and on until I met a mentor um, and you can tell I'm, I'm, I'm a bit garish with what I wear. And I noticed this guy at a networking event. I was doing a, a consultancy job. And there was a guy with a bright green top hat on. I thought, that's, that's my kind of guy. Um, and so I, I, I went up to talk to this guy. And it turns out that he'd worked for Saatchi and Saatchi for sort of um, 15 years in New York, come back and started an ethical marketing company. And his first client was Anita Roddick, the body shop founder. And he basically built the body shop with her. So I, I kind of come back to that with my 
um, crappy two-side two presentation, so I'm not going to bore you with that. Um, but then I really started to develop my business. Um, I started focusing more on high-end retail, started to kind of get some idea about what brand and marketing was, realised that it was probably important for what I, what I needed, certainly within the retail space. Um, but my thinking was always about being innovative. I was this young guy, I'd struggled in business because obviously, as you can imagine back then, entrepreneur, young entrepreneurs weren't really a thing. And so I had really struggled to, to have people take me seriously because being so young, um, and I set myself a goal really of innovating beyond my industry. And so I set myself the goal of creating more new products than had ever been done in the industry before. Um, managed to do it inside of a year and then got an award at the House Awards, lovely sort of ceremony. But the point of that was that as such a young guy, I was being recognised in this, what was an age-old industry, chocolatiers traditionally are sort of like wizard old guys from Belgium and France who've been doing it for eons. And there's this like pokey 16-year-old. And, and I think that's really where I started to formulate my idea of what brand actually is. And so I was engaging with my customers in just a different way than they'd experienced chocolate before. Um, later came the packaging, but first came the products. So it was things like edible chocolate champagne flutes, edible chocolate handbags, furniture. I was the guy who invented chocolate shoes. Don't let anyone tell you it was them. It was not. Um, and so I, you know, I did all of these things. To, my brand within chocolate was about innovation. Um, flavours, I, I had sea salt, black pepper and honeycomb in milk chocolate, I had cola, I had gin and tonic, I had all of these kind of weird and wacky flavours and it was very much a, a case of me testing what was working. Um, I started to supply to high-end retailers like Selfridges and others and then by the time I closed the business we were exporting to 15 countries around the world um, and we were selling to about three and a half thousand UK retailers, mostly independent, some, some high-end. And the reason I closed the business was the chocolate industry took a real downturn in about 20, 2013, 2014. The raw material cost is so high, the margins are so tight that I was just a complete busy idiot. You know, I, I was moving tons and tons and tons of product um, and we used to do some really big shows on QVC. Um, and, and we used to hit targets of sort of 650 to 750 pounds a minute you know, do, do all these long shows and then at the end of it go, well, I've literally made almost nothing. And so it's a very easy step off for me. I started some consultancy within the food and beverage sector in 2008. And by 2015, I realized that actually I was getting more and more call for consultancy. And I really stepped into brand. So I, I'm going to show you the pivotal thing that Robin, the, the, remember the body shop guy, showed me. And it's probably the most simplistic thing in the world but it changed my life. This, this is marketing. And this is how he explained it to me, that basically this is where most businesses and most marketing agencies exist within. Us, the product, business, and them. And so what generally tends to happen is they take a, a brand or a product on. So I'll give you, let's use the body shop as an example because this is how I was told. So Robin said to me, you know, Anita Roddick came to me and said, I want to make this something. I, I, I want to be a successful cosmetic brand. Now Robin could have taken the general marketing approach, which is, okay, right, let's do a load of adverts about cosmetics. Uh, let's get a website set up. Let, let's get all of the normal channels and, and go into what he said is 
a sales marketing channel. It's very much about sales focused conversions. Obviously at the time this is going back into the 90s so a lot of it was traditional print media. But it would just be a case of funneling out and I hope I don't offend some of you but his words were there's two ways to cover a wall. You can either throw shit at it and see what sticks or you can paint it. Both get the job done but in a very different way. And I think the problem with traditional marketing is there's an awful lot of shit that gets thrown at walls. But that's really where the thought process ends. It's about taking a product, right, let's just market it to the consumer. Let's, Harry's example. Yeah, let's get an influencer. Right, that, that bloke's got a following. Right, yeah, let's do an influencer campaign. Just send a load of stuff out. And so the thought and the connection and I think the difference between a, a, a company which is what I see that 90% and most of my clients are businesses or companies. They're not brands. Because the difference between a brand, get ready for this one, is that. That's it. The we. That is the missing cycle. So what Robin did to Anita Roddick said, you've got this amazing company, you've got all these ethics, you've got all these great things that we could focus on, but I'm not going to do that. Because what we actually want to do, your audience is women. And your audience is a particular type of consumer of cosmetic products. And what we really want to highlight is, well, what do they really care about? At essence, at deep essence, what do these women care about? And so he created something, and look it up afterwards. It's called Ruby. And she was the real-sized Barbie doll. And they actually sold these all across the UK, and the press absolutely went mad for it and it was basically a Barbie doll that looked like a real woman with all of the real real human imperfections that women have and it was a whole campaign that lasted for years all around body positivity for women and I think that's the difference with with branding is that it's about accessing and understanding at a deeper level in sometimes subtle ways but how you can interact at an emotional level um, and, and I think that's that is the secret so for any brand whether it's working with influencers whether it's in your packaging whether it's in your direct mail whether whatever way you do it I think it's really key to understand and, and we uh, the great thing about the internet now is there's so much information out there about how big companies activate their their brand feeling their emotional level um, because actually, you know, the advantage is that humans, we're very, very, we're kind of very animalistic. We are very, very sense and emotionally orientated creatures. And so as an example, one of the things that brands do all the time to trick you into buying their products, a lot of the supermarkets have scents developed that they spray in aisles or the bakery that actually give off the scent of freshly roasted bread. There's no freshly roasted bread at all. It's been shipped in overnight on a lorry, but you smell it, your amygdala then sends a signal and goes, ooh, I fancy bread. And that's a really subtle level, but how many people are actually using that? So just as an example, in, in the chocolate business, whenever I sent packaging out to products or buyers, I had a chocolate scent that I sprayed over all of my collateral. So every time a brochure went out, and I, and I made sure that there was enough on the front cover so that they'd get it on their hands. And they're driving home and they're going, mm, they're, uh, you know, I can still smell chocolate. And that, however, in a subtle way, 
it creates an emotional and psychological key interaction that, you know, it's, it's about understanding the subtle things, texture. You know, how many of us use texture in our marketing collateral? So if we're going to print anything, there's so many digital print textures now that can be used. And, and, it, and to us especially, I think the problem is in marketing, we are the worst people because we don't get fooled by a lot of this stuff because we do it every day. So, so we're not thinking at, at that le level of our consumers in the sense that by using textures on a brochure, by using different finishes, how, how does that feel? And Robin always used to say to me, if your brand was a house, what would it feel like? What would the carpets be like? What would you put on the walls? What kind of cushions would there be? To really go to the nth degree of understanding what your brand feels like at a really deep level and past the initial engagement with a customer, what you're really after is a deep emotional, psychological connection with that consumer. And they don't even realise it a lot of the time. So I don't know whether some of you know, but I, I, I do like Apple products. Um, but when you've opened, and if any of you have opened an Apple technology box, there's a smell, isn't there? There's a new Apple smell. And I'd love to tell you that that just happens in the manufacturing facility, but it's actually a scent that Apple developed. So that when you open the new Apple box, and it's usually on your technology for a few weeks, because before closing the cases of their equipment, they actually spray it into the products. So then when you first turn it on, what's the thing that happens? The Apple laptop creates heat or the phone and then actually starts expelling that smell. It's a really subtle thing, but just like the bakery or just like the fact that so many cafes, Starbucks and all the big guys, they all use it as well. They all smell the scent of freshly roasted coffee into their, into their cafes before opening for the day. Because even if they're not roasting any coffee, it creates that instant brand connection. And so that, from a sensory emotional point of view, is really key. But then I think, moving on from that, as a, as a collateral consistency, I think this is the other thing that a lot of brands, and, and you guys must see it all the time, I see it with so many of my customers, one of the biggest problems that most brands have got is they've got multiple personality disorder. Because every piece of collateral is different. They change brands too quickly. They don't stick with things long enough to really test it out. And so I think really for us as marketeers, our job is to say, find something simplistic and just stick with it over and over and over and over again until the customer subconsciously starts to recognize that as the part of the brand, like the new Apple smell. Because once you've bought an Apple product once, and you know we're very impressionable when it comes to scent, we've opened that new product subconsciously, we've taken that scent in, the next time it happens, we immediately recognize it. A lot of car manufacturers do the same thing. They have their own individual scents developed based upon the brand of the car. We all know the emotional connection that gives us. Well, but why can't we use that? It doesn't have to be multi, multi-million pound companies and budgets that use that. Any company can develop their own scent. Um, I'll give you another example, music. Music is such a powerful tool for human interaction. Um, one of my first consultancy jobs in 2008 was part of a Michelin Guide restaurant. And they paid this company about 10 grand to go in and develop this amazing music that would trigger particular patterns 
with humans. So they knew that particular tonal variations in music would cause people to eat more, crave sweet foods, go to the bar. It's what super clubs do, and I think this is the difference between a lot of the more underground music scene versus the big clubs. They also understand this. Um, I worked with a club in Mexico that had spent tens of thousands of dollars on their lighting and sound systems because they knew by manipulating in small ways their lighting mixed with a tonational change in the music, they could force people to go to the bar when they wanted to. They could bring them back onto the floor. And I, I remember sitting, they had this really amazing kind of DJ booth thing at the top of the restaurant with all these windows. And the guy said, watch this, you know, change a few bit of lighting, right, tweak the music, everyone disappears off to the bar, dance, <laughs> dance floor goes quiet. But it's, it's those things that now I think, you know, technology, there's eight or nine different websites that can allow you to actually do that with the brands that you work with. So even think about when we're thinking about video production, when we're thinking about websites, we think about landing pages, YouTube, even working with influencers, there's music that given a consistency will actually start to create an emotional link with your consumer. Um, and here's my little tip for you. So I wear really, really bright, garish stuff because it's memorable. Um, and that's become a bit of a calling card of mine. That is my brand. And, and you saw on the slide before, lemons. Um, why lemons? They're bright, they're fresh, and they're sharp. And that's what my, my ideas are all about. And I've used that for so many years. And if, if any of you go onto any of my social media today, had a slight, we had a slight technical issue earlier, so I will apologise, but every time I go to an event, I change all of my profile pictures on all of my social media to match what I'm wearing on the day. So that then when I go to an event and I connect with people, or if I'm at a conference and I'm tweeting on the board, as I had a couple of weeks ago at a British Chamber conference, I'm tweeting and there's a little picture of me with this really bright orange thing on, and then when people tweet me back, say, I'm the guy in the orange jacket, come and find me. That in itself is a really, really subtle brand touch, but then reinforces, I'm really easy to access and I always get remembered as the guy in the really bright, garish stuff. And so that, that becomes my brand. And so I think within creating collateral and branding, it's about, you know, sometimes I think, and, and James and I, we were having this conversation a little while ago, as, as marketers, we get a lot of pressure from from customers and clients to always be thinking about new ideas and new collateral and new stuff and just get it out there and sell this and adverts and landing pages. But actually I think sometimes as marketeers and branders, it's, it's just as important to say no. It's just as important to actually say, is this, is this really helping your brand? I get that we wanna sell products. I get that you wanna see revenue but the brand is the most valuable asset that you've ever got. And as a little chocolate company from the Midlands, my brand was valued at the height of my business as five million. That's what my brand was worth. Now, my company wasn't, but my brand was, because I'd built that brand with my customers. I'd been recognized in press and PR all over the world for creating all these weird and wacky things out of chocolate. A lot of it, I, in, in, Ten year, over 10 years of having my own business, do you, do you want to know what my advertising, this is advertising spend was? I spent 50 quid once on Google Ads. That's it, 50 quid. Every single piece of PR I got was completely free because I, I built a brand. I built 
an audience that appreciated a certain type of product and I understood that and how to leverage it. That's why I worked with all of these you know, super exclusive high-end retailers that you know, I was sitting alongside all these huge brands. And, and I think that's what sort of Harry's saying now is that actually because of the digital space and the digital world, we can do that. Back, back when I started, you only, the, the retailers were the gateway. Um, and if you weren't in retailers, it was very, very difficult to access a marketplace. Now, that's not the case. But I think we have to think about and start looking at these big companies at a deeper level and say, how are they accessing? What does brand mean to them? And so I've, I've got the, the typical cheesy motivational quotes. Yeah, Seth Godin, this is a really, really favourite quote of mine. Because I, I think it, it starts to really sum up what, what brand is. Because brand is the difference. And, and you might have heard a lot of people talking about this, but I think we're about to move into a next paradigm of voice activation. And I think that that is going to be where brand becomes so key. Because when you're asking for something via voice, and we all know that in marketing and social, there's so much white noise out there. There's so many people online, there's so many influencers, there's so many social media personnel, there's so many landing pages, there's so many Facebook adverts. But what's going to cut through that noise? And brand is it. Brand is the difference between a company succeeding over a short period of time or having longevity. And some, it does take a long time to build brand and be brave in doing that. Be brave in saying to customers, actually, no, we're not going to put something out. We're not going to put that collateral out because does it? Does it actually add to your brand? And are we, are we layering? And, and I think that's the, other, that's the final thing I'll sort of leave you with brand. It's really about layering. It's about being really key. And I think this wonderful man here can help you a lot with that from the human aspect. But I think new brand is human. It's, it's gone from where small businesses like mine years ago I had to pretend that we were these huge multinational organisations. You know, I used to send emails saying, I'll get my team to look at it. Um, it was just me on a different email address emailing them. Hello, you know, this is David from Louis T. Um, but actually, you know, that time I think is gone. It's not about faking it till you make it. It's about being personal, being human, showing your true personality, and actually being brave enough to delve with your clients to say, well, how are, you, how are you showing the human side? When was the last time on your company Instagram account you had a video of you guys standing around drinking coffee, talking about the latest Game of Thrones episode? Um, you know, whatever it is, that's the human story. That's the brand. It's the people behind it. Um, and I think there's, there's so many ways that we can do that for clients now is actually all the companies that we're working for, but we have to be brave and we also have to understand that it's about layering. We have to build this up. You have to have a value and a real personal connection with your audience. And it's about trying different ways. It's about using the techniques that the big businesses are giving us. The sound, the senses, the taste, the touches. You know, it's, if you're sending out marketing material, when was the last time you sent out your, the, the, the person that you're engaging with? What's their favorite food? When was the last time you posted them some of their favorite food? When I sent gifts to buyers or if I sent gifts to really valued customers, I never sent them my own chocolate because 
you know, I make it, and therefore it's, it's not such a personal gift. My, my job as my business development hat was about finding out who their family were, who their kids were, what's their dog called. And if they were a dog person, I'd send them dog toys or dog treats or a book on the breed or something really personal. So again, it's having that human element and touch points to reach into your audience and pull out as much information as you can and activate them in a, in a personal way and as a human way. So my final point is that I've got lots and lots of different online tools now that I use. And, and if you find me on any social media, um, drop me a message with either, if you want it through that social media, that's absolutely fine. Um, but if you want it on an email, drop me your email address or WhatsApp or however you want to contact me, do it and I'll send you a list of the tools that I use. Some of them you'll know, but isn't that part of the point? Um, some of them you may not have heard of, but they may just give you that little bit of extra um, aspect to the company that you're working with or the clients you are and maybe one or two of the tools will offer you some value um, and of course you know um, I'd love to hear your questions if you have any as well thank you